We come this morning to our sermon passage, and this week we are continuing our Advent series, these Sundays in December, and looking at the mothers of Jesus. I mentioned this last week, but the ruler of Israel when Jesus was born was a man named Herod. You can look him up in encyclopedias or whatever, you'll find him as Herod the Great. And he was a king over the region that was appointed actually by the Roman Empire to rule over the area, um, what they called the region of Syria and later Palestine. But when Herod was appointed, he faced quite a bit of opposition. He had people that were accusing him of not being fully Jewish, and so he could not be a rightful king over the Jewish people. <clears throat> and the truth was, they were right. Herod wasn't completely Jewish, and this was a time, obviously, when that very much mattered to the people there. He was partially Jewish, but the accusations were actually true, whether they were valid or not. And so Herod did the step that made the most sense to him. He had his genealogical records destroyed so that there was no kind of legal paper trail to trace back his ancestry. And so when people could come to him and say, well, you're not fully Jewish, so you can't reign, he could say, prove it. And at least on paper, they couldn't. Now I bring that up because I want to compare that with what we find in the opening words of the New Testament. The New Testament, the Gospel of Matthew being the first book, opens with a genealogy of Jesus, tracing his ancestry all the way back to Abraham, roughly 2,000 years before the time of Jesus. <clears throat> and when the Gospel of Matthew was written, the early church was facing all kinds of accusations, somewhat similar to what Herod had faced, that Jesus wasn't actually fully Jewish, that maybe he was Samaritan, which was um, kind of a, a cousin of the Jewish people. So he couldn't be the Messiah. He wasn't fully Jewish, Right? Because the Messiah would have the perfect, pure bloodline. They were dealing with accusations that maybe he was the illegitimate son of Mary and a Roman soldier who assaulted her. But where Herod had his genealogical records destroyed, Jesus Christ, inspired by his Holy Spirit, Matthew to write and publish a genealogy. In fact, it's the first thing you see when we open the new Testament. And what we find there might be a little bit surprising because where Herod had destroyed his genealogy, Jesus hadn't. And also Matthew didn't write a genealogy that showed that Jesus had quote-unquote pure blood. In fact, when you look at the people listed, you see that there are people that are not Jewish, some that are not Jewish at all. You find people that Matthew probably should have skipped over, especially if he was writing a genealogy to prove that Jesus was the you know, rightful, perfect, righteous one. He's got some people in his family tree that had done some horrible, horrible things. And in one of the most shocking things, especially in the ancient world into which Jesus was born and where he lived, the genealogy of Jesus lists five women. Five women. Tamar, Ruth, Bathsheba, Rahab, and his mother Mary, the mothers of Jesus. Now last week we looked at the first of these, Tamar, and today we're going to fast forward about 500-ish 
years to look at the next mother of Jesus listed in the genealogy, Rahab, to see the shocking ways that God worked in her life and her choices to bring about his purposes, to see why Matthew included her and what that means for us. So with that said, our passage this morning is from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 1, verses 1 through 5. This is God's word, good, beautiful, and true. This is the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac the father of Jacob. Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Amenadab, Amenadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, and Salmon the father of Boaz, whose mother was Rahab. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for your word, that in it you show us who you are and what you're about, and so you show us who we are in you. I pray in these moments as we look into the treasures of your word that you would open the eyes of our hearts by your spirit, that we may see the riches that are ours in the gospel, all that is ours by faith in Jesus. I pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Have you ever felt like an outsider? I'm sure you have. I have too, and it's one of the things that I hate the most, and I'm willing to bet that you hate it too. You're at a place, and uh, maybe you're out of town, and you start talking, and people are picking up that your accent uh, uh, gives you away, that you're not from there, and all of a sudden people are asking you to say words. Did you say pecan instead of pecan? And everybody laughs. Maybe you laugh along, but inside you're thinking, let's move on. (laughs) Let's talk about something else. Um, I feel uncomfortable. It is being pointed out that I am an outsider, at least in a sense here. Or maybe you've been in a different culture entirely and you feel like everybody's looking at you or maybe even laughing at you. Those are um, pretty uh, not extreme examples. But to feel like an outsider can be a terrible feeling. You want to get away from that as quickly as possible. You want to get back home, the place where you feel like you. I bring that up because this morning we're looking at Rahab, this great, 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 however many great grandmother of Jesus, who in a sense is the ultimate outsider. She's someone with the wrong background, the wrong family, the wrong job, and the wrong place, yet her story is not of an outsider being exposed as an outsider and made to feel shame. It's the story of an outsider finding home in a way she never could have expected. We first meet Rahab in Scripture in the book of Joshua. Joshua is the sixth book in the Old Testament, just after Deuteronomy. And we meet her in Joshua chapter 2. And where we are in history, in the history of God's people, is that 40 years before, God had, uh, with great power, miraculously brought his people, Israel, the descendants of Abraham, out of slavery in Egypt. He had done that entirely apart from anything they had done, just purely by his grace. And as he removed them from slavery and bondage and he brought them out of Egypt, he in a sense constituted them as a new kingdom of his free people that were called to live um, on love of God and love of others, embodied for us in, in, in the Old Testament in, uh, in the Ten Commandments in Exodus chapter 20, which was kind of like the constitution of this new nation. 
And this was the next stage in God's redemption. He had made promises to Abraham, and now in a sense he was fulfilling part of those promises and bringing his purposes to redeem all that was lost in the fall into sin. To, um, as he said it in the words of Abraham in the promise to through Abraham's family to bless all families on earth, to bring blessing and not curse, to break into our world of sin and violence with his kindness and his grace, and to redeem. So God has brought his people out of Egypt. He's given them this constitution as his kingdom, and he's leading them into what they called the promised land. It was this next stage in redemption. God was going to establish them in a particular place where they would grow as a nation where eventually he would bring about the arrival, the ultimate fulfillment of his promises to redeem in Jesus Christ. Now at the time, um, he's brought his people out of Egypt. There's already people living in this promised land. They're called Canaanites. The Canaanites were incredibly wicked people. Their culture was one of extreme violence and abuse of the most vulnerable, and it had been this way for hundreds and hundreds of years. You can look up the archaeological evidence, and you'll see that their worship practices included bodily mutilation. It included even things like child sacrifice. The culture in Canaan was one that was corrupt in every part of their society. And so as God is bringing his people into this newly constituted nation of Israel, in a sense, into this land, it is him both keeping a promise that he had made to Abraham and bringing this next stage of redemption, and it's also him bringing judgment on the culture and the people of Canaan, so that as Israel is coming in, the Canaanites have a choice in front of them. We can see the reality of the wickedness and corruption of our culture and leave it behind and go all in on what God's doing in this new people, or we can stay with the wickedness and corruption in our culture and face judgment and even death. Of course, it wasn't just the Israelites rushing in and killing people. God gives them specific instructions as they're coming into the land and they encounter people. Before they go into battle or anything like that, they're, all, they're to offer peace terms. They're to give the opportunity for people to say, God is at work now, and he is doing something different, and it is time to leave behind the wickedness that I have been uh, uh, um, raised in, that I've been drowning in to find his grace. So that's kind of background before we even meet Rahab. The Israelites are coming into the promised land. Moses has died. He's left the people in the charge of a man named Joshua. And Joshua is leading them into the promised land. In Joshua chapter 2, when we meet Rahab, the Israelites have just crossed over into the promised land. They've crossed over the Jordan River, which was the dividing line. They come into the land, and the first city that they come to is Jericho. Now, maybe you know Jericho if you remember stories from, you know, children's Bibles or Sunday school if you were raised in that, or, um, you know, the story of Jericho is one that just has a, a, a lot of notoriety in culture if people have any 
idea of stories that are in the Bible, you know, the, the fall of the walls of Jericho. But at the time, Jericho was less of a bustling metropolis, not really a huge city at all full of different kinds of people. Jericho was more like a military outpost. You know, it was, it was at the entrance into the land. So if you were coming into the land of Canaan from the east, you had to go past Jericho. And at the time, Jericho was like a military base. It was kind of like a gate into the city. And you had uh, the, the army there, this heavily armed military base at the edge of the land to protect against people coming in. Now, at the time, Jericho wasn't very large. I always think of, or I'd hear Jericho and I think of the city of Jericho and I'd think of some uh, larger city, maybe Raleigh. But Jericho was just six acres in size, which um, I checked it out. I looked it up. This is just barely larger than our Walmart here in Dunn. And by the way, it's kind of hard to find the square footage of <laughs> Walmart, but I did. Um, and that's how big Jericho was, about the size of a super Walmart. And like most military bases, it had an entire economy that built up around it, markets and things, and um, like just about every military outpost in history had brothels and taverns, prostitutes. And this exactly here is where we find Rahab, the mother of Jesus, our Lord. Now, when we meet her, Rahab seems to be the owner and the operator of this brothel and tavern. And we don't know if anybody else actually worked there as a prostitute. Nobody else is mentioned as doing that thing. But, you know, being a prostitute and running a brothel, that's not what any little girl in history has grown up thinking. And I can't wait to grow up and, and do that. Um, no, in fact, it looks like Rahab, like many women across history has felt like she's responsible for her wider family. It seems like she's the one that cares for them, that makes sure ends meet, and this is the way that she is found to take care of them. Of course, nobody in Canaan has helped her. It's part of the proof of the poison of that society, that a woman feels like she needs and has to do this to keep things going. But we meet her when two Israelite spies, Joshua has sent them into the Jericho to check things out. These two Israelite spies, they come into her place of business. We aren't told why. Maybe they were there to try to list it out for information in a common room. Um, but whichever it is, the spies have been noticed. Rumor floats up to the, the commander, the, the ruler over Jericho, that they're at Rahab's. And he sends a message to her to bring them out so they can be... Uh, so they can be arrested and captured. But she decides, rather, to hide the spies on her roof to protect them. And she actually sends the king's men away, saying that the Israelite spies had already left the city. She didn't know where they were. Now, it's a bit of a mystery as to why she would do this, but we find out soon enough. She says that in the 40 years since God had worked powerfully for the Israelites in Egypt... News has reached Canaan. And in her own words, this is what she says, When we heard of it, our hearts melted in fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you. For the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on the earth below. But Rahab's heart has not only melted 
in fear, her heart has realized that something more is going on than just another army showing up in strength and saying, well, God's on our side so we can do what we want. We get an indication on that when she speaks of the Lord your God being God in heaven above and on earth below. At the time, the perception in much of the ancient world is that each nation had its own God, and there would have been multiple gods, and that God's power was more or less limited to the physical space, the land where his people lived. But as Rahab confesses here that the God of the Israelites, Yahweh, is the true God, who's not just Lord of the Israelites, but God of all heaven above and earth below, she has gained an insight. Because if he is Lord of all, then his grace and kindness is not just for the Israelites. If he is Lord of all, it may mean, it does mean, that his grace is available to all. That there's not just wrath, that there's kindness and mercy. Which is why she asked the spies to show her kindness not just for herself, but her, as she says, her father, her mother, her brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them. As she has gained the insight of God's mercy, she is asking that it be given to those who, <laughs> to others as well. And when God gives the Israelites victory in Jericho, which he does, the spies promise to protect her and all who are in her household, which is what they do, and after that, Rahab, who had been forced to sell her body, Rahab, who had been used, physically used, uh, emotionally abused, Rahab is welcomed into this new kingdom, this nation of Israel. She's not a descendant of Abraham, but that's never, ever been the point. She is a woman who has come face to face with the reality of God at work in this world. And she has thrown herself on the surety of his mercy. She's come into this new society where she will no longer have to sell her body. A new society, in fact, has come to her. She has found home being brought into the people of God. Now, as I said earlier, there's one word that defines Rahab. When we first encounter her in Joshua 2, it is the word outsider. She's, a, in a sense, a triple outsider. Number one, she's a prostitute. That's never, ever been an honorable um, and respected way of life. She's an outsider there. Number two, she's a Canaanite. So she has been raised and grown up in this wicked, wicked society. So she's not from the right place, in a sense. And number three, she's a woman. Now, again, there's nothing, or there's nothing wrong with being a woman, but I, I want to acknowledge that being a woman in that world and in our world is to have all kinds of hurdles in front of you that men never have to deal with. Rahab is an outsider, at least in the way we think of things. But when we flip forward to the New Testament, when we flip forward to the New Testament, we find Rahab's name not only mentioned in the genealogy in Matthew 1, we find her name mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 and the book of James chapter 2 as one of the primary examples of what it means to have faith in God. Rahab, the prostitute, is a paradigm of what faith looks like. 
In other words, not Rahab the outsider. In a sense, Rahab, one of the ultimate insiders. Rahab, one of the people that epitomizes what it means for us to come face to face with the reality of God and respond by throwing ourselves on his love for us. You know, Rahab's story was a tragic and terrible one until those Israelites knocked on her front door that day. But when she encountered what God was doing, it meant that her story found a different path. It meant she wouldn't have to sell her body to make ends meet anymore. It meant that she wouldn't have to be a victim of the wicked culture she had known her whole life. It meant being swept up into the covenant faithfulness of God, swept up into the greater story of his redemption. It meant that Rahab now could live out a greater truth, that she was not an outsider, not at all. Home had found her because God had found her, and her story, the one that she lived out and that we know now know from Scripture, wound up being a story that she never could have imagined. Because Rahab was later married to a man named Salmon, and they had a son named Boaz, a man that we meet in the book of Ruth, who is someone who abounds with kindness, with an eye for the outsider and the poor, a man who loves others well and does what is right. This is the fruit of Rahab's faith. The changing of her story when she encountered the grace of God meant the cycles of violence and abuse that had been hoisted on her shoulders her whole life were broken. They stopped with her. And her son knew her story. It wasn't hidden away in shame. She apparently had told it. It's how we probably know it now. It wasn't a skeleton hidden away in a closet, but it was the first chapter of a story of grace and transformation that reverberated out and echoed out in the life of her son. And her son Boaz, he married the woman we're going to look at next week, Ruth. And that Ruth was another great-great-great-great-grandmother of Jesus and the great-grandmother of King David. And through this family of people who look like outsiders, God kept working within that story, eventually entering our history as one of them, as one of us in Jesus Christ the great-great-great-great-grandson of Rahab, the ultimate outsider who saw the heart of God and found home. Now today there's an invitation to us. We may not be exactly like Rahab. Our stories are different, but I know that we've all done things we're not proud of. And that we've all had things done to us that make us feel intense shame. But what I can say is what Rahab would have said because she lived it. It does not matter who you've been or what you've done or what other people have done to you. God is at work in this world and he has brought and is bringing a kingdom where you can know a love beyond comprehension and he will come into those dark places of your guilt and shame and shine his light into them so that you can be free. God's grace showed up at Rahab's door that day in a way she could not have expected. And His grace will show up at the doors of our brothels, the places we'd probably rather hide away in darkness to set us free. A few years ago, one of my favorite authors, um, Eugene Peterson, passed away. He was a pastor and an author, and he'd written many, many, many great books. 
and he's one of the rare occasions, honestly, of a pastor and author who um, turned out to be not problematic. There's not stories that have come out about Eugene Peterson mistreating people. Um, but at his funeral, his son delivered a eulogy. And his son started the eulogy, and it almost sounded like he was going to tell some family secrets. Um, like he was going to drag some skeletons out of the closet. Because in his eulogy, he was you know, talking to his dad, and he jokes... Dad, you fooled everybody over all these years. You fooled everyone. He said this, because I alone know your secret. I alone know what you've been doing, how you've fooled them all. You've taken something so simple, something a child could understand, and you've made it into a career, into a life. I know this because for 50 years you've been telling me the secret. For 50 years, you steal into my room at night and you whisper it softly to my sleeping head. It's the same message over and over and you don't vary it one bit. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. This is what Rahab learned. This is what she passed down to her son Boaz. Not more violence and sin, but God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He's relentless. It's what her great-great-great-great-grandson Jesus Christ literally embodied. Jesus was this message taking on flesh. Jesus is the proof that God love loves us. That he would give his life for us. His death for us. His resurrection for us. Jesus is the proof that God is on our side because when he comes, we've sung about it in these Christmas songs, he comes as Emmanuel, which means God with us. And then when Jesus arrives in human flesh, he declares he is God with us. And not God come coming for condemnation, but God for us. And now never God apart from us. God for us and for our good. Jesus is the proof that God is coming after us, not to condemn again, but to forgive. He will go into that faraway country. He will chase after us. He will come to the doors of our brothels and go within to shine his light, to set us free. And Jesus is the proof that God is relentless. His purposes to give us grace will not, cannot be thwarted. For if Jesus wouldn't, if God would not let the death of Jesus, His only begotten Son, be the final word about Him, He will not let it be the final word for us, His adopted sons and daughters. Even the finality of death cannot overcome His love for us. And Jesus is the proof. So the next few weeks, as we're preparing for Christmas on December 25th, on the next few weeks, as you see manger scenes, as you sing Christmas songs, as you reflect on the coming of Jesus into our world, hear the truth that Rahab passed down to her son. Hear the wisdom that Eugene Peterson whispered into his son's ears and the truth that the manger of Jesus, the Son of God, screams to us to hear over the noise of our world. God loves you. He's on your side. He's coming after you. He is relentless. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for the truth of your word. I thank you for what the gospel speaks to us. And I thank you for this great, 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 great grandmother of Jesus and this great, great grandmother of ours, this mother in the faith, Rahab. And what her story shows to us the power of your grace. I pray that we would be like her. 
And as we encounter the reality of you over and over again, that we would leave behind all that we need to, to find our all in you. And pray all this in the name of Jesus. Amen.